Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let Them Eat Grass, a podcast exploring real food, broken ecosystems, and a better way to live. I'm Austin Williams, your farmer and podcast host. Before I began farming, I was a public school teacher who had grown up in the suburbs of St. Louis. And if you were like me, you had no idea what was real or who to trust when it came to our food. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a chance you've begun to doubt what huge food corporations are trying to sell you is as healthy as it's cracked up to be. And for good reason. I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, but a farmer whose mission is to heal the land and nourish the people. You see, conventional farms are dying. We've been losing farmers for well over a century now. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. Recently, my friend Abdullah visited me on the farm. He just graduated from college and was making a farewell tour in mid-Missouri before he went back home to Saudi Arabia. I don't have much free time nowadays, but I invited him to tag along during my evening chores. This just happened to be my day of getting everything done I've been putting off for months. I just changed the oil at my wife's car before he came, and after he came, I still needed to change my oil. And when he got to the farm, he started talking a mile a minute, trying to catch me up on his life over the past couple years. This continued as I changed the oil in my car. Nothing too special about oil, after all. Then we fed our puppies. Imagine ten impossibly cute puppies whining for you to play with them and looking desperate for more food. He slowed down a little bit when he saw the puppies, but his geyser of ketchup was still going strong. They weren't enough for him to stop entirely. As we drove to the cows, he was in the middle of telling me about his spring break trip two years ago. He kind of offhandedly remarked that he had never been on a farm before, but that was the closest he got to going off script. Then we got to our cows, and I called for them. Abdullah entered this slow rapture. Just like in the movies, he slowly stopped putting sentences together. Pretty soon, all he could spit out were individual words spaced multiple seconds apart. He seemed very, very focused on what was happening right in front of him. And that was the last I heard about his spring break for the entire evening. When our entire 180-plus cow herd moved to a new field after I repeated one word three times, he was thunderstruck. He couldn't believe the ease of the Pavlovian conditioning he was witnessing. I tried to explain how uncommon our farm was, and how the average farmer just lets their cows continuously graze the same field for months. They need a pickup, ATVs, attack helicopters, and a can of skull to get them through the forsaken days of, quote, moving the cows. As I repaired a broken mineral feeder, he tried to figure out how it worked and his mouth dropped a little lower when he learned that the cows know how to get the mineral for themselves. All I have to do is drag it to the next field. They even know whether they need more copper or more salt. As the cows approached the mineral feeder, I talked with them about body condition and the signs of hungry cow. Our cows were sleek and fat, just looking happy to be eating more grass. And that, my lunatics, is the beauty of a well-trained, resilient, grass-fed cow herd. When it comes to healing the land, cows are the most regenerative animal we run. They will eat everything in a given area. Try getting sheep or chickens to do that. Not gonna happen. Sheep like to eat forbs, anything with deep tap roots, and we'll usually run them ahead of our cows so they can top the grass and then move on. They like to be picky eaters. In sufficient quantity, Chicken poop can be really healing for the ground they leave it on, but leave them for too long in a given area, and they will scratch to death. I like to tell people that I haven't seen much magic in my life, but what cow manure can do to a struggling field is nothing short of magical. I've seen a field that looked worn out and dry get grazed at a million pound stock density, 
and two months later, it looked like virgin prairie grass. Walking through it was like walking on a different planet. The key is that we hit it really hard with cows and then gave it plenty of rest. We do five things on our farm, and we don't do all of them. Some of them we just allow to happen. Sunlight, water, hoofaction, manure, and time. That's it. Everything we do, right there. We aren't in control of the amount of sunlight or water we we receive, but we are in control of how much of it gets used. We are in control of the hoof action, manure, and time. I learned how to control these things from a man named David Boatwright. If you don't already know him, he's my fellow farmer and best friend. If it wasn't for him, I would never have stepped foot on a healthy, productive farm. David answers with the speed, power, and diversity of a search engine. He's one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met when it comes to biology and agriculture. I promise you'll learn something you didn't know before. Here you go. Well, David, um, welcome to Let Them Eat Grass. I'm really glad that you could join me this morning, this very early morning, uh, as we, uh, before we before we start the day and go off and do what we need to on the farm. Um, there's a couple questions that I have prepared for you, but before we start, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your farming philosophy. Yeah, sure thing, Austin. So, uh, as you mentioned, it is a beautiful early morning this morning. Um, for our farming philosophy, our mission statement is to restore the health and vitality of the land and to nourish the families who eat of its bounty. <clears throat> so within that, that's kind of our guiding principle and our mission statement behind our farm, why we do what we do. So each and everything on our farm, we evaluate and say, okay, are we able to use um, these animals in this production practice in a way that um, would regeneratively restore the land that makes it better and at the same time produces an even more nutrient-rich um, food product for all of our families to enjoy? So everything we do on our farm, it really has to do both of those things. And that's how we evaluate um, what we do and really also evaluate how well we are doing what we're doing. So I know it's really, you're really, really, um, specifically as it not targeting, but like you're concerned with families and that you make families a very big part of, um, the people that you're trying to reach with your food. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you and your family down the road of restoration agriculture? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Austin. And I think it was really um, a God thing in terms of bringing us um, to just the right place. Uh, both my wife and I were raised um, very conventionally in agriculture, and um, that, was, that was our background, and we didn't think anything of it. Uh, you know, you got all your food at Walmart, and your only concern was how cheap it was. And uh, I was never a big fan of some of the conventional agricultural methods. Um, CAFOs and feedlots. I never thought that was that great, but I didn't really have a problem with it or really understand that there was a different way. Um, however, my wife and I really got into um, regenerative grazing management because we saw an opportunity in agriculture to heal the land and, and just from economic perspective to produce a lot more um, pounds of meat. And we thought, wow, this could be our end, our way to uh, make a living in agriculture. So we really got into that. And in doing so, we made contacts with a lot of people um, who were fantastic mentors and, and regenerative grazers, but they were also interested in nutrient density of food and um, what I considered, you know, uh, I don't know, green uh, eating, you know, clean eating. I just kind of dismissed it. But those those kind of mentors were all around us. Um, and at the same time, actually, um, very early on um, in my wife and I's marriage, we found out that they told us, hey, like um, my wife had some health issues, um, pretty serious health issues. And they said, well, as a result of this, like you guys might never be able to have children. And if you're going to have children, like 
it's going to take a lot of medications and treatments and very difficult um, and expensive. And that just totally like grounded us. Uh, I mean, um, we had gotten married young. Uh, we wanted a big family. Uh, we wanted to raise it out on the farm. Um, we weren't ready to start right away, but to find out that one, it was, might not happen and two, extremely difficult and expensive. That just, it just blew our mind. You know, it really floored us and made us rethink what we were doing and how. Um, and they, the doctor was like, well, you can start on all these different medications and then a couple of those kind of prime you for a couple of years down the road that we might, you know, get a shot at this. Mm. And we were, we just kind of left like, oh my gosh, there's no way, uh, you know, what's going on. And it was kind of at that pivotal moment that, you know, we had been introduced to clean eating and nutrient dense food from these grazing mentors. And I don't know exactly what put us down that, but, you know, but something, and my wife and I decided, I just remember, you know what, like we've, we've got to change the way we eat. Let's try that because we weren't all about a ton of medications and it just didn't, the, the road, the doctor was like, oh yeah, you can go, you know, you can try this basically with, with virtually no confidence it would work. And that just didn't, that didn't inspire us to be like, oh, that's the way we want to go. So uh, we switched, we completely turned on its head the way we ate. Um, ironically, we were a farm that didn't produce food at all uh so when we went to start eating uh nutrient-rich pasture-raised food we didn't have any on our farm and um we started buying it from other farms we um really really changed on ahead how we ate um and it took some time and we didn't really know how to cook we didn't know you know what was that good to eat and what wasn't so it took a lot of research and time uh, but the long story short was in about nine months, uh, Mariah's health issues completely corrected after we changed how we ate. Um, and a little over a year later after that uh, doctor diagnosed about a year and a half, um, <clears throat> Judah, our firstborn, was conceived. So he was born about two years after uh, that uh, doctor diagnosis. So uh, oh, pretty Praise radical. God around there oh absolutely praise the lord um so it was just incredible but that is that's kind of been our focus on families because that then drove what we did with fed from the farm because we wanted this kind of nutrient-rich food that we could really trust and eat with confidence for our family because once we went out and, and we're trying to buy pasture-raised food uh you know we were frustrated with mismarketing and greenwashing and I knew how we wanted it raised but we really struggled to find it that way and I wanted something too where sometimes we would find like a brand or a company and they'd have one thing that was legit and then they'd have a bunch of other stuff and it wasn't and what I really and my wife too had a heart for was like man we should be able to go to like one place and or at least you know one one farm and know you know if that if they're doing grass-fed to finish beef right you know that their pasture-raised chicken is legit too and they're you know their pork it shouldn't just be one of them is and the other two are just, you know conventional and they're just ripping you off it really really upset us and uh and that and just with the, the holistic nature of wanting you know we were already farming and we were already doing regenerative grazing management it was like we've got to do this ourselves we can raise it so we started raising it for ourselves and it went well. And um, uh, Mariah and I visited another farm that had just started uh, marketing their products. And we went there and we're like, wow, like we should do this. I think, I think there are other people out here that are frustrated like we are. Um, and so we did. And uh, that kind of brings us to the present. I'm really, really glad that you did because I would not be here today if you had not made that choice. Um, that so it doesn't necessarily lead me to the to, to the next question, but so I'm only farming because you know you made the choice to provide this really high quality, nutrient dense food to families specifically, and so I've known you for longer though, even than than fed from the farm has been a thing, uh, and you know you're my best friend. And you might not know this, but one of my favorite phrases of yours is that our kind of farming, which is restoration agriculture, 
is as much what we do as what we don't do. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes uh, in oh, the alternative agriculture movement, uh, what you hear a lot of is, oh, we, we don't use chemicals, we don't use pesticides, we don't use this, we don't use that, we don't do this, we don't do that. Um, and one, that's kind of like a negative you know, marketing thing. But on the second thing, it's not just about what you don't do. And in other words, if you just don't do all those things and just abandon the land, basically, if you do nothing with the land, we don't do everything. It's called abandonment, dude. Um, and uh, if you do that, the land degrades. Um, there is very careful um, detailed reports by uh, the Department of Agriculture and other organizations of the degradation of our national parklands over time. Um, in areas that have absolutely no animal access, some that don't even allow wild animals, some that only allow wild animals, no livestock, um, those abandoned areas degrade and have been degrading extremely rapidly in the United States um, in terms of what would be expected. So at the same point, in fact, they degrade at virtually the same rate as extremely mismanaged agriculture land, which is just stunning. It's mind boggling. So what that says right there is that the solution isn't to do nothing. Like we can't just not do things our way to land healing. Right. So, Mm -hmm. That then brings us to, okay, so what do we do? Like, what's the path forward if doing nothing destroys the land and doing conventional agriculture obviously destroys the land? Like, where's the, where's the middle ground there? And really the answer is biological mimicry. And it is using the natural biological systems of animal movement, herd behavior, um, trampling and high density grazing and multi-species interaction with the land that is so complex. However, um, that's the kind of system that existed prior to um, basically European arrival in North America. And those kind of systems worked extremely well and created an extremely healthy landscape. Uh, The incredible thing about it is, is that we can recreate that um, using, uh, as Joel Salatin likes to say, you know, our opposing thumbs and, and minds like we have. Uh, incredible gifts and tools at our disposal. And we can um, recreate those systems on a smaller scale, um, but we can do it without kind of the chaos effect of nature, if you will. Um, You know, nature is inevitably haphazard in those systems and we can be very planned and very focused and actually accelerate um, that rate of healing compared to what would happen, even if you could, you know, create that, recreate that natural setting. We can do it far faster um, by planning uh, cattle moves and keeping them at a high density with portable electric fencing and bringing in other classes of animals, sheep and chickens and cows and and pigs. You know, we can do all that and plan it out and create that kind of uh, a a biological mimicry system on a small scale. Um, And I think that's what we have to do and why our type of farming is at least as much about what we do as what we don't do. Cause yeah. And a lot of people know we don't use GMOs and we don't use chemicals. Um, we don't use herbicides or pesticides or, you know, grubicides or any of the hides, but it's not just that it is also that we use, you know, ultra high stock density grazing that we use plan, um, you know, intensive plan grazing on our farms that we use multiple species to harvest, you know, different uh, forage types on our farm and that we do that all in a biological uh, mimicry system so that the end result is that we have a healthier soil, healthier plants, healthier landscape, um, more robust, that grows healthier animals, um, that allows families to thrive. And, uh, you know, and that's why I say that it is just about just as much about what we do as what we don't do. Absolutely. So you you mentioned multiple times in your answer about like, you know, how we use different classes or even different species of animals to accomplish this biomimicry. And 
you know, if I'm if I'm the consumer, which I am, um, if I'm really really interested in healing the land with every bite I eat, what should my diet look like? Are there any foods that don't get a lot of attention that I should reconsider? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, you know, ultimately, as <laughs> as someone that's trying to provide for your family, like you are, I'm not a real big fan of the word consumer. It just it has a really negative connotation. Um, but as someone that's providing for your family and, and genuinely cares about your family and the food that you're eating, the, the number one thing that has to work for you is, is simply what you like to eat, right? Because if you try to radically change the way you're eating and fill you and your family's bodies with nutrient-rich food, you'll feel the benefit, but you're totally going to burn out. It's hard work to make that kind of a change. You're totally going to burn out, especially if you really don't like what you're eating. So within the context of the palate that you've already developed and developing, I mean, Mariah and I, when we switched, we had a very narrow palate in terms of what we ate, and it's much, much broader now. Um, but to get to the heart of your question, are there things that kind of fly under the radar? Yeah, I think there are. Um, I think the biggest one that really flies under the radar is lamb, um, which is kind of interesting. But the the sheep have one of the most nutrient-rich diets of any of the animals. So on our farm, we use the sheep exactly what they were intended to do. They love to eat broad-leafed plants and stemmy things. Um, what most farmers consider weeds and soak with herbicides every year to control. Well, we don't use any plant chemicals or herbicides. So how are we going to, quote-unquote, control our weeds? Um, and we use our sheep. They readily eat them. Um, but these plants are really superfoods. They have extremely deep roots, so they are pulling up nutrients from really, really deep in the soil um, at a depth that our plant, that our normal grass roots couldn't grab. So our grass is extremely nutrient-rich. It's growing on a healthy soil, and that makes incredibly nutrient-rich grass-fed to finished beef. The lamb is just like even a step on top of that because all they're eating is the extremely deep-rooted, um, you know, tap-rooted plants. And those have just concentrated minerals and nutrients. So that's just what they feast on all day long. Um, and it just, the the end product is just kind of like this, just unbelievably nutrient-rich product, um, especially in terms of certain trace minerals and elements. Um, it has a unique flavor. Some people love it. Some people don't. I get that. I'm a huge fan, but I think that's probably the biggest uh, underrated and kind of sleeper and, and all of the different, uh, you know, common species that are raised in regenerative agriculture, uh, because it has so much to offer in terms of a robust flavor and things you can do cooking it, you know, texture and cooking wise, you, you use it a lot like you would use beef, but it is just packed with awesome things for you. So uh, I would pick lamb. I've, I've grown to love lamb since moving to the farm and working on the farm. Um, so thinking about lamb, beef, and chicken, mm -hmm. if if you had to pick one, or maybe you can't pick one, that's also a valid choice. If I'm already sold out on eating well and eating pasture-raised food, what is the most ecologically sustainable meat to eat? And are there certain benefits that are attached to some that aren't attached to others? Ooh, that's a good question. So the first thing I'm going to pick on is the word sustainable. So uh, sustainable isn't good enough. If we just, we have a growing population on this world. Um, if we just sustain what we're doing now, we will eventually be out of food. So it can't just be sustainable. It has got to be regenerative. It has got to be making more, you know, the, the snowball has to be building momentum each and every year. So that aside, back to um, the animals and the one that does the most, um, your ruminant animals are really going to carry the torch when it comes to land healing, because without them, the the biological system falls apart. So grassland ecology and biomimicry pivots around ruminant animals, grazing animals like cattle, like sheep, even goats. You've got, you know, originally in the North America, it was bison, very closely related to cattle. Um, you've got to have a ruminant animal in the mix. That's kind of the backbone of the system. Um, and then from there, 
each ruminant animal has its own niche. So I, I would say that in most cases, um, cattle um, are going to be the, the backbone. Um, and then followed closely by sheep, though you can have sheep without the cattle. Um, and you've got to have those. Those are the, the pivot point of a regenerative agriculture farm in terms of the, the grassland developed or was created to respond to um, the action of those animals, the grazing at high density and then movement. And that is really ultimately what a lot of factors there, but that's kind of what this healing land healing and regeneration hinges on um, because there's an incredible biological reaction there. So then what you have is other species like chickens or like, you know, uh, pigs or something in nature, those came after the grazing animals. So basically uh, giant herds of ruminants would come in and they would trample and eat all of the grass in the area. They would foul it up, um, manure it, and then they would leave very rapidly. And, you know, they're sweeping across the landscape. And then all the birds would come in, the fowl would come in and they would scratch through um, all the manure pads. They would eat the insects, they would sanitize it. Um, other animals as well would come in secondarily and disturb the landscape and because they liked it open um, and they liked what the ruminants brought, the insects and the open and the, and the new growth on the grasses. So in a regenerative agriculture system, I would say, you know, on our farm, the beef and lamb are like the essential um, pin of, you know, healing the land. And then the the chickens and um, pigs on farms that have the, the pigs regenerative grazing, those are, they're secondary, but they are really like accelerators. That's like, um, you know, really, really turning up the heat when you can get those operating too, because it just speeds up the rate of healing. Um, on the landscape. So what might take a couple years of, you know, really intensive grazing to get the landscape to respond and, and, and really jump how we know it can. If you add chickens to the mix behind the cows, you might get that kind of a response in one or two years. Um, and the same with um, pork. And, and so I think the the omnivores, your pigs and chickens, and there's other species too, but those are the main, the big ones. Uh, those are kind of I think complementary, um, but really landscape healing accelerators um, if managed properly. And if managed improperly, they're landscape destroyers. Um, but the same holds true for ruined animals as well. That's really incredible. And I like how you said that, you know, cattle are the backbone. And that's perfect because this episode is going to be about cattle. So let's, I want to zoom in on them for a second. And Something I, I think I even asked you this a couple of weeks ago, but what, and I, you know, <clears throat> it's a great story. And I think that since I work in farming that like, I always get caught up in the story that our production is so much different than the average conventional farm that, you know, we do things so much differently, but what objectively makes pasture raised beef different from grain fed beef? Like if I'm the provider, not even the consumer, if I'm the provider for my family, what is, when I go to the store or if I go to fedfromthefarm.com and I buy some pasture-raised beef, like what am I, what is different about that slab of meat that I'm bringing home to my family? Great question. Um, a whole lot of things to start with. So, but just diving in on the first thing that's different is really, uh, and got to evaluate it from a couple different outlooks, okay? Different lenses to view it. Um, if we're going to look at just general health and nutrient density of the meat, that's one of our big focusings, right? Has to do with how it's been raised its entire life. So the conventional beef that you just bought at the grocery store, um, that calf was born on a golf green grazing system. So basically a farm that's been overgrazed and degraded soil and degraded plants it never really, I mean, the roots, the plant roots it was eating were probably never more than, you know, two or three inches deep. And, and they're just not producing much in the way of grass, good grass for this calf. So he's growing up on a super subpar uh, system. He's probably been supplemented his entire life with grains. He's then weaned from his mother and he's put in a feedlot 
where he's in his own manure and just this barren area and all he eats is hay and GMO grains, corn and soybeans primarily. That's like feeding us potato chips and soda. A ruminant animal was not designed. It has four chambered stomachs specifically designed to break down cellulose. That's grass, um, grass chemical basically, um, which is what makes cellulose is what makes grass undigestible to us. That's why we can't just go and survive off our lawns. Um, but an- ruminant animals have the ability to break that down. They have no, no digestive capacity or no digestive design, I should say, to eat grains. But that's what they're fed in a feedlot situation. Chemical soaked corn and soybeans, just soda and potato chips. And the result of that is not stunning. First off, from a nutrient standpoint, Corn and soybeans are not nutrient-dense foods at all. They're completely nutrient-hollowed out. They're genetically modified. They grow far faster than they ought to. um, And they have innumerable issues already just as a plant. But then we harvest that and we feed it to the animals. And you really are what you eat. And the animals are no different. So they're chomping down on, you know, soda and potato chips that has no nutrients in it. They're getting extremely fat, extremely fast. At the same time, the um, the low pH in their bodies caused from eating grain and something called acidosis um, from basically eating too much of a food they weren't designed to is actually slowly eating their liver. So um, it's not commonly known, but most beef cattle that are finished on grain in the United States, once they're processed, their livers are actually condemned um, as inedible um, because they have giant ulcerations and all kinds of insanely nastiness so basically those animals are dying an animal that physiologically could live for you know 15 to 20 years is is dying at about a year year and a half old in the conventional system just physically dying like if you just wow continue to feed it it would die (laughs) which is just insane uh so contrast that now with an animal raised in a regenerative grazing system um, even from con- the point of conception, that cow has been grazing nutrient-rich, tall grass um, that has deep roots, plenty of nutrients. That calf is being nourished its entire life. It's born out in that system, and then it starts. It's trained instantly by its mother what to eat, what not to eat. It's um, learning to graze on that system. It has a diet of exactly what it was intended to have, just grass. It gets sleek. It grows. Um, it has a shiny hair coat. It's doing well because it's primed with exactly what it was created to eat, and it thrives in that environment. And not surprisingly, when you have an animal that eats exactly what it was intended to eat, and it's eating plants, that's what it was intended to eat, when it's eating those plants grown on a healthy soil, those plants have way more available nutrients in it than overgrazed grass or corn and soybeans, right? There's no chemicals on it either. The animal is able to take in those extra nutrients and and incorporate it into its own body. So what you get then is an end product that has um, way higher basic minerals in it, um, from selenium and zinc to, you know, just all your minerals levels are going to be higher in this um, regeneratively raised beef animal. On top of that, um, your omega-3 fatty acid is going to be balanced. So it your omega-3 to omega-6 in your grass-fed to finished beef is going to be balanced or the omega-3 will be a little higher, which means it's not going to cause inflammation in your body. Um, it's, going to, it's going to be balanced. It's going to do exactly what it ought to do inside your body, um, which is nourish it. Um, all that is awesome in terms of you've got these healthy fats, you've got way more vitamin A, D, and E. All these things are really helping to you. Then there's like just one more that's just unbelievably good, and that's CLA in a grass-fed to finish animal that's truly finished on pasture. CLA is conjugated linoleic acid. <clears throat> it's a cancer-fighting compound. It is only found in, animal, in ruminant animals that exclusively eat grass for their diet. Um, feeding an animal even just a little bit of grain, a ruminant animal, uh, a cow, just a little bit of grain, rapidly destroys its body's stores of CLA. So um, a study that I saw suggested that if you had a beef animal that had only eaten grass its entire life up to two years old, um, it would have very high CLA levels. If you then took that animal and fed it grain for 30 days, at the end of the 30-day period, uh, statistically, it didn't have any CLA. 
that was how rapidly you could degrade it from an animal. So then you look at an animal that's only lived that life its entire life and has no chance, has none of that compound. Um, and that's just incredible in terms of, and that's just what we know of yet, um, that these animals raised the way they were created to be raised. That, that's the kind of things that they have um, to offer us and our families, you know, compounds that are fighting for us, you know, every minute of the day, and we don't even realize it. Um, you know, packed full of all that goodness. Um, again, the difference between the the regeneratively raised beef animal and the conventionally raised beef animal. And on top of that, you just have general cleanliness and health of the animal. Uh, if you're in a feedlot and you're on manure all the time, you're really dirty. The bacteria levels and infection levels are really high. Um, so when that animal is processed, there's a lot greater risk of contamination with anything <laughs> um, compared to um, animals raised on pasture, just statistically. So an animal that's eating grass pasture compared to that's finished on grass pasture and harvested off of it compared to a confinement animal has, I, don't quote me on the exact number, but something like 98% less E. coli. So we've all got some bacteria. We know that. Um, same with animals, but just like 98% less, like it is just completely on a different level of health than its, uh, counterpart in the conventional confinement system. So when you go to present that food as a provider for your family, you're presenting something that is incredibly safe, incredibly nutrient rich. Um, at the same time, you are presenting something that was raised in a way that is actually restoring the land, that is growing more grass, producing more food for your families and um, the world each and every year, on top of improving the water system and general ecology and wildlife health. And the list goes on and on, contrasted with a conventional feedlot beef that you know is nutrient deprived, is filled with chemicals, hormones, you know, antibiotics, those are all the other things that aren't in our, you know, our real pasture raised animal that are in the conventional animal. Um, so they're packed full of that. And they're produced in a system that is degrading our landscapes, that is eroding our soils, that is allowing our water to wash away and go from being one of the most important assets we have to a huge liability causing flooding and destruction um, on top of propagating a, you know, a crop production system that is incredibly devastating to our um, planet and producing and, you know, propping up, you know, genetic modification of plants. Like it's just like compounding terribleness, really um, contrasted with something that is just incredible. Um, so it's pretty stark contrast. And one day to another yeah i'd i'd say so like when you put it that way like how can you argue and that's what is also so incredible to me is that even though we we believe and we even more so than believing that we look at the scientific reports and we look at ecology and we look at um the actual like the minerals in the soil and we see cows specifically as the protagonist of the story rather than the antagonist. But so often in pop culture and what you hear on the news, cows are the antagonist. And so one of my last questions for you is like, why do you, you know, here we are, we're using cows the way God intended them to be used. Like what is to blame for the bum rap that they get in society? And what can we do to, uh, to fight that? Uh, great question. So why do they get a bum rap? Well, they get a bum rap, but like virtually every other part of agriculture, because like any tool, they can be misused. Um, and the default is misuse, basically. So if you go out there and do nothing with your animals and just fence them in in a field and leave them, they will destroy it. Um, they'll systematically destroy. And that's what people see. You know, they drive through, you know, flyover country, middle America, and any anywhere you go, virtually everything you see is, um, you know, cows grubbing down a field that's way too short. And then they look over and they see a field that there aren't cows on, and it's really tall grass. And the farmer's probably bailing it for hay, which is actually not uh, very good from an ecological perspective and the health of the soil, but it looks a whole lot better than what those cows are destroying. And I think people just intuitively go, ah, that is not good. And when that's virtually all you see, 
I think it's very easy and understandable that um, most people kind of have a negative connotation, or at least most um, eco-conscious people kind of have a negative connotation with cattle because they've been involved um, in widespread destruction of the land. I think it's ironic, though, that such people often um, that I've run into are big fans of, you know, like soy based products and like non-meat stuff. Cause that like the only thing worse than the, than the cow out there grubbing down on the ground is the genetically modified corn and soybean system. Uh, that's absolutely pillaging the land <laughs> that's used to produce the, you know, the meat free alternative. So I find that ironic, but and the, one bad system doesn't justify another one. So you're looking at that, they're getting this bad rap because they are used to, you know, they are degrading the, the environment. But at the same time, if we use those animals as a tool in a biological mimicry system, if we put them back to work doing what they were designed to do in a system that actually works with nature instead of against it, they are absolutely essential for land healing. Um, there's a book called Cows Save the Planet, and it's true. Um, using properly managed grazing livestock like cattle, which is the number one grazing animal that we have here in the United States and throughout the world, I think, in terms of domesticated animals, um, pretty close. I think goats might top it out worldwide. But anyway, at least domestically in the United States, cattle are what we have the most of. And that is so that is our our greatest tool then for land healing and we can truly do that with the animals by managing them correctly we can completely reverse land degradation and turn it into land healing and once you're doing that you are healing the soil you are kind of detoxifying the landscape you um, your land is able to hold more water so you have less flooding you have greater water retention you have drought mitigation you have you know, all the benefits that we just talked about in terms of, you know, the nutrient density and just health properties of the food, you know, everything can just turn on a head when you um, use these beef cattle in a planned migratory grazing system across your land. Um, and I think that's why it's our greatest tool. Um, on top of it all, you, people often ask the question, the comeback is methane. And I read an article the other day and I just laughed. Um, but almost had to cry. It was a conventional beef article, and they were basically saying, ha, feedlot beef is more eco-responsible uh, than grass-fed beef because uh, if you, when you feed grain to cows, they produce less methane. The more grass they eat, the more methane they eat. So their solution you know, to uh, huh, global warming, apparently, uh, was more cattle and feedlots that that was the answer which on so many levels is just insanity but that aside you know they're like oh they produce less methane so therefore it's more eco-responsible for us to feed all of our animals and feedlots and you know that's going to fix the problem right wrong well the incredible thing has recently been discovered um there's an article just a year or two ago um the reason that we think methane from cattle is such a problem is it was thought there was no no method for the um, landscape to actually retain that methane. In other words, we looked at it from this scientific, the scientific studies were studying extremely degraded landscapes and biologically dead farmland because that's the standard. And why, you know, how could anything be different? You know, those are kind of the same institutions that even deny there's anything to regenerative agriculture. So they're testing this and they're like, no, no, cows make methane, methane goes in the air, end of story. Well, it turns out that studies and tests on long-term regenerative farms have found that the, the incredibly alive soil and soil biology um, of a, a healthy grassland ecosystem with grazing ruminants and you know all these things doing exactly what they're supposed to do actually creates um, an environment where you have incredibly diverse microbiota. And in that incredibly diverse microbiota, is bacteria that degrade methane. Um, and the studies done on these regenerative farms actually showed that not only do these um, soil bacteria that live in this healthy soil degrade all the methane from produced by the cattle and other grazing livestock on that land, but they're actually methane negative in that um, the, they were, you know, so much extra methane in the air, basically, that they're... <laughs> They're breaking down more methane than is produced by the animals on that farm, which is just incredible to me. 
to think about, you know, and again, you know, nature has an answer. Uh, I, I, until I read that, always struggled with the answer. I knew there was something because today on this planet, we have far fewer grazing animals than we ever have before. Um, historically, we would have had millions and millions and millions and millions more cows or cow equivalents in terms of the wildlife that was on this farm that equally produces methane. So I'm like, well, that cannot be the problem because, you know, like we have, <laughs> we have removed an enormous number of animals from this planet that would have been producing methane. So there's some, you know, something we're missing. Well, it turns out that it's the, uh, you know, the soil um, bacteria and healthy biota that's actually able to degrade the methane produced by these grazing animals in a, a you know, a regenerative system. So I think that's an incredible answer to that question. And again, to a, a common uh, attack on beef and especially grass-fed beef. Yeah, and just going back to even the first part of of your answer, like yeah, like it is, you know, it's an incredible answer that you know they, you know, they are there's microbiota in the soil, but also like I'm just thinking about how just the different ways that people think are healthier than you know a feedlot, and you you mentioned two, right? You mentioned one that's like you know farmers who do hay. And uh, you know, crop crop fields full of corn and soybeans, and I just think it's funny that the two other things that people see most often in flyover country are actually two forms of agriculture that support those dirty and disgusting feedlots. Like that farmer in his hay field is cutting hay to feed cows in dirty and disgusting feedlots, and anywhere from one third to two thirds of all the grain, specifically of the corn in the U.S., goes into feeding cows on feedlots and it's like yeah it's cleaner but like it's all part of the same system yeah uh, so it, i think you know it looks better from the road but uh the truth of it is mm-hmm. that, you know, crop fields are probably the prettiest of all you, know, you drive through it and it looks great um but it, it's a you know a facade um a facade if you're looking at what they're actually doing you know <laughs> underneath that beautiful green canopy of corn you have soil that's eroding um you know and incredibly destructive chemicals being applied you know it looks good um but what it's doing what's actually happening is incredibly uh kind of sinister actually i totally agree well that about wraps it up for everything i have for you today thank you so much for joining me today david um is there anything else that you want to leave any of our listeners with before you go hmm you know, I, I think what I would want to leave your listeners with is just the challenge um, to just do um, just do something. You know, I, I can remember when my wife and I were starting out, kind of going all the way back to this podcast, we just felt overwhelmed when we realized that what we were eating was not good for us and that we had to make a change. When we started trying, starting was terrifying and we didn't even know where to begin. It was so difficult, overwhelming, like <laughs> there were tears you know, it's just all of those things. And I just remember finally what we did was we just said, okay, like, let's just pick one thing and we're going to, we're going to start there. And, and so we picked, it was actually beef. And so we started buying grass fed beef and then we systematically went through our pantry, you know, one, one item a week and just said, we're not going to eat this anymore. So we're going to replace it with, but I would just challenge your listeners, those who want to start, but haven't. And those who have started and are just feeling discouraged because it is hard. There's a huge learning curve. Um, it is not easy to um, nourish your family with nutrient-rich food or to, um, you know, choose food that's actually raised in a regenerative way. That is not easy to find it. It's not easy to, you know, prepare it. Everything takes more work, especially at first, you know, once you get good at it and that becomes a normal habit and default, then, uh, you know, you don't even realize it, which is, you know, the beauty of being, you know, five years in now. But, um, and that's my challenge is just start somewhere. Don't be afraid to start small um, and, and work your way forward because uh, we've all been there. And, uh, you know, it, what you're doing is, is leaving a legacy for those who will come after you. And that's one of the things uh, Mariah, my wife and I talk about a lot is the legacy that we will leave to our children and that they're being raised and brought up this way. This is how they will think of normal. They will know how to cook food. They will know how to prepare it. Their bodies will have been primed to run on, you know, this kind of food. Um, they don't have to have a, a detox because they, they've just always been 
you know, eating this kind of stuff. So it's exciting. It's inspiring. And, and that's one of the things that's really prompted Mariah and I, you know, to continue and to be so passionate about nourishing our family well. Um, so I would just encourage your listeners with that as well. Thank you so much, David. Uh, that's that's all I have for you. Um, if anybody wants to find really high quality, nutrient dense, pasture raised food, David and myself, we we work on the same farm. Um, it's fedfromthefarm.com. So if if you are in the mid Missouri area and you are you know you're you're wanting to take that next radical step, you should feel free to check it out. Thanks so much, David. Hey, lunatics. If you have any questions or thoughts about this episode or want to sponsor a future one, follow me on Twitter at Missouri Austin or shoot me an email to austin at letthemeatgrass.org. I might even include your question along with my answer at the end of my next episode. If you live in the Missouri area and want to take the next step in radically protecting the health of you and your family, you can buy some of our pasture-raised food at my friend David's website, fedfromthefarm.com. That's F-E-D, fedfromthefarm.com. And use the offer code PDCST, like podcast without the vowels, for $10 off your next order. I am shamelessly promoting this, but since I manage this farm and personally take care of the animals, this is the only operation I can wholeheartedly endorse. We have buying clubs in Kansas City, Columbia, Jeff City, Washington, St. Charles, Chesterfield, and St. Louis that we drive to either once a week or once every two weeks. Don't be strangers. I want to hear from you. If you order food from fedfromthefarm.com, Put a note in the comment section that you heard about us through this podcast. I'm attempting something revolutionary here. Due to my city delivery schedule, I would consistently get to meet my subscribers. I would love to swap stories, share laughs, and hear the story of what convinced you to become a lunatic. If I see you a few times, I'll probably even invite you to our farm. We do those tours free of charge. If you really enjoyed this podcast, subscribe or download it on whatever podcast directory you use. If you're using iTunes and are feeling mighty generous with the next five minutes of your life, please rate it and leave a review. The more reviews I get, the better my chances of being featured in the spotlight. And as self-serving as that sounds, the more attention this podcast gets means that I get to improve the production quality for you. Right now, I've managed to keep my entire budget for starting under a hundred bucks. The music, cover art, and sound design have all been done by friends or relatives out of the goodness of their hearts. With your subscriptions and reviews, I can turn this podcast from a bi-weekly to a weekly podcast if I can start generating an income stream. But I'll need sponsors for that. Production assistance was provided by the kissable Kelly Williams. That's my wife. Music was performed by the bodacious Brandon Nelson. If you like Scandinavian folk music, you can find his album Old Yarns by Eloin. That's E-L-O-I-G-N at Bandcamp. Cover art was drawn by the radical Rebecca Raven. Fact-checking was done by the daring David Boatwright. And sound engineering was done by the jubilant Jeffrey Hook. If you want any of these marvelous people to help you with your projects, just let me know. That's all I have for now. Until next time, how's Saudi. <laughs>